Well, this morning we are in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 21 through 26. A few years back, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, and by the way, I'm not one of those pastors that's like, I was reading the Wall Street Journal this morning, and I came across this article, but I actually did read an article in the Wall Street Journal about how often we say we're sorry And I was shocked by the statistics because we apologize statistically about four times a week. On average, people apologize about four times a week. And in those apologies, the the article stated that we apologize to strangers more than we do our loved ones, like our spouses, and definitely more than our family, (laughs) And so it's interesting, this article said that 22% of the times that we apologize is to strangers, our romantic partners, our spouses, 11% of the time, and our family members, 7% of the time. That's interesting, isn't it? And then out of that, who do we apologize to the most? Well, friends are the people that we apologize to the most, 46% of the time. And so the article went on to ask the question, why do we struggle so hard to say, I'm sorry, to the people that we love. Not only have I found this to be true in our biological families, but this also happens within the family of God, believers in Christ. This happens in the church. I remember one of the first churches I became a part of as a staff member. I joined it sort of naively. I was really excited. Okay, we're all, we all love Jesus. We're in this together. And then I I was in part of this really small community where the church was located. And I remember just knowing and hearing, meeting people in the community. They'd say, oh, you work there? Why do you work there? I'm like, well, it's a church. We love Jesus. And they're like, oh, man, you know. And then over time, I realized that the the congregation had so much um, conflict that had never been resolved. And it had bled out so much that it was hurting the impact of the gospel in their community. And this is so sad to me, and I just realized this for the very first time. Man, this is a really big deal. And a lot of us don't have tools on how to resolve difficult things when they come up. And so I want to talk directly to us now, Integrity Church. I don't want us to be naive when it comes to unresolved conflict and unforgiveness. And perhaps one of the reasons we're often naive uh, to this type of sin is because I think for many of us, we refuse to acknowledge a foundational truth that we are going to fail each other. We are going to fail each other. Humans fail each other all the time. We are all going to let each other down at some point, and I actually think this is not a bad thing. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need to experience forgiveness and love from others, but I want to be real with you this morning. If you look around you right now, like look to the person to your left, look to the person to your right, everyone that you just looked at is going to fail you. Even as you look at me, I am going to fail you. I have failed you at times. And I don't say this this morning to stir up any kind of animosity or conflict, but I am giving you a reality that people fail. God doesn't fail, but people fail. Even for my boys, I want to tell my boys, boys, I am going to fail you. I am not going to be a perfect father. But there is one perfect father, and and, and my failures as a father, Lord willing, will draw you to the perfect father, and that's actually what my failures are supposed to do. 
And so all the failures that we experience from others should draw us to a one who never fails. And that's the good news of the gospel. So because of this church, we should be the safest place in the world for people to fail, the church. The church should be the safest place on the planet for those of us to fail. And if you're looking for a no-fail church, you have to wait until we get to heaven. And if you think you found a no-fail church, you have found a church that's not really real, all right? Because we are going to fail. But if we can't fail here, where else are we going to fail? How else can we grow and mature in our failures? So because we're going to fail each other, hopefully you've accepted that now, right? We need tools. We need to know what God says about it. We need biblical truths so that we can learn to apologize and learn how to have honest conversations and learn how to forgive and learn how to reconcile and build trust and restore. And who better to teach us than Jesus? And that's what we're going to see in God's word this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. Jesus says it this way. You have heard it said... You've heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders, he says, will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, listen to this church, that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to to the hell of fire. So there's a theme here that we're going to see. It's not just here, but throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, and then he'll say, but I say. And what he's doing here, he's speaking of the traditions of old versus what he's now ushering in in the new covenant in the kingdom. So when he says, you have heard it said, he's talking about what they have may have maybe heard in the old covenant law or what they, listen, think they have heard in the old covenant law. And here's why I say that, say it that way. Because the Pharisees and other teachers of the law began to rely on other traditions, oral traditions, that became so popular that they would regard them equal to the scriptures. And so this is what we often do even with uh, cultural Christianity. We've done this from time to time. There's phrases that have been just oral traditions that have gone through our culture that will often put on par with Scripture but are not actually in the Bible. For example, God helps those who help themselves. We'll hear that all the time. It's not in the Bible. God won't give you more than you can handle. I mean, that's kind of true in some ways, but it's not in the Bible. Like, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible. Some of y'all are like, thank God, right? <laughs> God works in mysterious ways. Now, that's a true statement, but it's not really in the Bible. And we can see that it happens, but that statement in and of itself is not in the Bible. And so these things aren't exactly in the Bible, but what we've done is we've used these statements equal at times to Scripture, And so that's what Jesus is untangling here through the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it say, but I say. He's saying you may have heard it in the law, or maybe your misunderstanding of the law, or maybe your uh, oral tradition that you brought in that you're putting on par with the law. Either way, he's saying Jesus is introducing them to something that is brand new. And every time he does that, he is going to, listen, move away from what they know to be external on the outside to the internal, which Jesus is going to deal with the issues of the heart. 
And so Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And notice that he ties it in then with anger. He says, whoever is angry at his brother is liable for the same thing as murder. Now, Jesus is not saying then that anger is equal to murder, but there's a warning for anger to reside in your heart that he's showing us. Again, it's all about the heart. And I want to say this as a preface. Jesus is not talking about here as righteous anger. We unpacked what righteous anger is a few months ago in our series in Ephesians, when Ephesians 4 says, be angry but do not sin. Jesus is not talking about righteous anger here, given the context. And he's talking about a type of anger that would bring harm. In fact, early manuscripts on this very passage says that Jesus uh, says that Jesus is saying talking about anger without cause just so we wouldn't be confused with righteous anger. Either way the context is how we understand what Jesus is talking about when he's not talking about uh, a righteous or a godly anger. And here's the reason why we know this because again look at verse 22. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable for hell. And here's, a, this is an anger at the person's brother that says you fool. The word that is translated there is, is the word raka, which is an, an Aramaic expression of abuse. It's the anger of contempt. It's to insult another person like naming them as an idiot. And this is the type of anger that would seek revenge, and it doesn't want to forgive, and it doesn't want to make things work. It, it only sees a person has, who's a fool that you want to see fail. And Jesus is saying, is calling this out. This is an unchecked anger. But Jesus says, in that anger, he says, you're liable for counsel, meaning the counsel of heaven. And that person who's liable to counsel that stays in that position, he says, is liable for the fire of hell. In other words, the person who remains in this posture with no intention to grow and to mature and to heal, they might not know Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. And this is actually one of the themes that we see in John's epistle in 1 John, that you can't have hate in your heart and love Christ simultaneously. The two just don't go together. In fact, I'll just read a couple from 1 John. 1 John 2, 9. He says, Whoever says he is in light and hates his brother is still where? In darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blind his eyes. So this person stays in a position of hate, and darkness has blinded their eyes. Then 1 John 3, 15, whoever hates his brother, it's very similar to what Jesus just said, is a murderer, and you know that murder, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the, friends, the Bible it takes this seriously. If you have hatred in your heart with no intention to see resolve to see healing, to see forgiveness. The scriptures give you no confidence that there's true gospel belief in you. That's pretty serious. And Jesus continues the severity of it. Look in verse 23. So if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there is a member 
and, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, Jesus makes a profound statement here. He, said, he refers to the gift of an altar. He's talking about an offering that a Jew would bring to the temple as an act of worship before the Lord. And look at what he says. He says, if you come and you have hatred in your heart toward your brother or your sister and it's not resolved, he says, I don't want your offering. He says, first, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Are you tracking with that? In other words, what's more important to God is that you deal with your heart with another brother before you just go into another worship service and go through the motions. It's important to deal with your heart with your brother or sister in Christ and to serve on a Sunday morning, then to sing on Sunday morning, then to give on Sunday morning, just to be a regular uh, church attender on Sunday morning. He says, I want you to go and be reconciled to your brother or your sister. He says, go and do that first. Church, this is how important it is to deal with your heart and how you relate to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no ambiguity here. The heart of reconciliation is the heart of God, so it matters to God. Now, I want to be clear on something here, because there's many misconceptions around the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation. And if we're not careful, we can walk around in what I would call pretend forgiveness or pretend Reconciliation, and so what I mean when I say pretend forgiveness, it's where you sort of just blow off whatever had wronged you, brush it off. It's like, well, that didn't really bother me. That didn't actually hurt me. I've, I've forgiven that person. But we still kind of hold it on, and so maybe it shows up kind of sideways through humor or sarcasm to avoid the issue. Maybe we do pretend reconciliation when we say, well, we're just going to move forward without any requirements or expectations of the one who has hurt us or wronged us. And we say we sort of reconciled even though the one who's wronged you hasn't agreed that they've actually wronged you or showed any true evidence of change and there's no, made no steps toward change. That's not true reconciliation. That's pretend reconciliation. So pretend forgiveness and pretend reconciliation, they don't really get to the heart of the gospel and what it would call us to relationally, then they don't tell the truth or live in reality. And Jesus here, he's pressing us to make the steps of reconciliation. It's sort of like what Paul says in Romans 12, 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, he says, live peacefully with all. So I want to explain then how do we make those steps? Then how do we know if we're walking in forgiveness? How do we know if we're walking in reconciliation? Because if we don't understand that, we, don't really, we won't be able to understand then what Jesus' intent here is. Forgiveness, it means that you will not hold another person's sin against them. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. It doesn't mean that Forgiveness is forgetting. That's not what the Bible says, by the way. When Jesus says in Jeremiah 31 that he will remember our sins no more, it doesn't mean that Jesus, God all of a sudden had amnesia or we got shot with the you know, men in black gun and we can't remember what just happened or what happened in the past. 
It's not that at all. It means that Jesus won't charge you for what you've done. That's forgiveness. That I won't charge um, a person for what they've done against me. That's forgiveness. I want good for them. I don't want bad for them. I don't want want revenge for them. This doesn't mean that we no longer feel the pain of the offense. It doesn't mean that we cease longing for justice. This doesn't mean that we are to make it easy for the offender to hurt us again. This also doesn't mean it's a one-time event. In fact, forgiveness is, is most often a long process, especially for what is done to you is extremely harmful. It's typically a, a crock pot, not a microwave. This is forgiveness. And then there's reconciliation, and reconciliation is different. Reconciliation is not only have I forgiven, but there's a relationship that's now been restored. There's mutual trust that's been rebuilt, and there's mutual respect, and there's mutual humility. And this only happens, listen, this reconciliation only happens when both the offender and the offended come together with something to bring to the table. I'd heard it said that it takes a sinner to repent, a victim to forgive, but it takes both to reconcile. And this is why forgiveness is possible for anyone who believes in Jesus. But listen, reconciliation isn't always possible. Why? Because both of you would have to come together with the same goal in mind. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to reconcile with somebody who doesn't see the offense or doesn't see what has been wrong, that can be really painful. You're trying to say, man, this is really hurtful, and then maybe they belittle it, or maybe they belittle you, or maybe they minimize what they've done. And without that, there is no mutual trust. The relationship cannot be restored, and it can be so hard and so painful. Now, I know your question is, well, didn't, didn't Jesus do that with us? Didn't Jesus reconcile us to God? Yes, absolutely. And for this reason, we as believers in Jesus should always have the heart of reconciliation. Romans 5, verse 10, he says, For while we were yet enemies, we were, what, reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now, we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, what, reconciliation. So if reconciliation is bringing two parties together with something to offer, how is it that we who had nothing to offer God can be reconciled to God? God, The answer to that question is actually the heart of the gospel. Because if reconciliation is about bringing two parties together to humble themselves, how can God reconcile himself to us? Here's how. He didn't need to humble himself because he's perfect. He has no fault to bring to the table, but what did he do for us? Well, Philippians 2 says, verse 7, He emptied himself by becoming the form of a servant, becoming born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God didn't have to humble himself, but he knew that our sin would keep us from humbling ourselves. So what did he do? He sent his son to humble himself on our behalf. So much so that he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is what Jesus did for us. So if there's anyone who would have the heart of forgiveness and reconciliation, it should be those who have been forgiven and reconciled to Jesus. 
And that's the heart behind, behind it for those of us who believe. That we should always want to reconcile, and then we should always be curious about the brokenness in our relationships to know what, it, what we brought to the table, what hurt or sin that we have may have caused against another person. But here's the reality. We can't make someone do the same for us. And that's what we have to trust God and say, I'm striving, God, to live peacefully with all as long as it depends on me. So it takes a sinner to repent, a victim to forgive, but it takes both to reconcile. And forgiveness is always possible for those who believe. But reconciliation isn't always possible because it requires both to humble themselves. But even when it's not possible, we can rest and know that only through Christ and his redeeming work in our life that it makes it possible in the first place. So as long as it depends on us, he says, I want you to make steps. I want you to have hard conversations. I want you to pursue these relationships, pursue forgiveness, pursue reconciliation, fight for reconciliation. And look at how much, how far Jesus goes with this. Verse 25, he says, come, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out of prison until you have paid the last penny. Now notice the language that Jesus used here. He's using a, a figure of speech. He's not saying, but, but he's saying that a person who doesn't move toward steps of forgiveness and reconciliation, he's like, it's as if they are judging themselves and putting themselves in prison. He says, and you'll never get out until you pay the last penalty. And what he's saying is, unless you deal with your heart in regards to the anger that you have toward another person, it's like you will be stuck. It's like you will be in prison. And you can't get out until the last penny, which means you can't get out until you've resolved this in your heart. And what does he say then? Come to terms quickly. If you have issues in your heart toward another person, he says, deal with it quickly so it doesn't further imprison you and cause you to be stuck. This is how serious Jesus takes forgiveness and reconciliation. And I know people often say time heals, but that is not true, and it's definitely not in the Bible. What heals us is when we have real conversations. And one of the big steps we can take is to talk to people, not about them. So when there's hurt in our heart, I say, I'm going to go to this person. As a staff team, we have different core values as a staff team at Integrity Church. And one of the uh, values that we have is we say the last 10%. Like, what are you holding back? What needs to be said that just needs to be said and needs to be shared? There's hurt. There's unresolved issues. Man, what? Let's make steps to talk about it. We want to talk to people, not about people. 
And this doesn't mean that we don't seek counsel and say, hey, I need some wisdom here. This may have been hurtful. I don't know what to do with this. And we obviously want to seek counsel before we have these hard conversations around forgiveness and reconciliation. But even in that counsel, we need to make sure that the counsel is telling us to, yes, you need to go to that person and try to offer forgiveness and try to offer um, reconciliation and seek forgiveness and seek uh, reconciliation. And that should be the goal of these conversations. There's this someone that you, have, that, have, that you have anger toward or unresolved issues with and haven't addressed it. I would encourage you to do as Jesus says, which is to come to terms quickly. And I would say do it in person if possible. Don't text and say, hey, I think we have some issues. Let's text it out real quick. I would say don't DM this person on social media and say, let's resolve this. I, I don't think God intends for us to resolve conflict on social media, okay? I just rarely have heard that. If you have a story and said, you, I resolved a major conflict in my life through Facebook, I would love to hear it. I've never heard the story. <laughs> you think God intends for us to, to meet face to face? Because this is what the body of Christ is. It's a people that are together. And so Jesus is inviting us not to allow our anger to reside in our hearts because he loves us enough not to allow us to be stuck in the prison of unforgiveness. He invites us to walk, invites us to walk in this. And, and here's the thing. Because we are reconciled to Jesus, we get to be reconciled to one another. It's a privilege that of radical forgiveness and reconciliation that it can happen in our life because we experience life change in our hearts. And listen, I know for, for some of us in this room, this is hard to imagine. Because some of you in this room have had people that have hurt you, that have wronged you in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. And some of you have faced rejection, shame, abandonment, abuse. Some of you have been abandoned and abused by the people who were supposed to have protected you and defended you. And as much as you want justice, and as much as you want to control their response, and as much as you hope and pray that they would come to their senses and they see the damage and the hurt they've caused, you can't make things happen for them. It's all in the hands of God. And I know this is so frustrating for so many of us. And I've got to be honest, like sometimes I hear sermons on forgiveness, and they've just come off as so flippant. Like somebody's wronged you, but just forgive them. Like, it's just this quick thing. Like, it's over in a weekend, right? I just had this moment, and I just thought about what they'd done, and just forgave them, and it's that, that easy. It is not that easy. And even this morning, if I come across flippant, it's not my intention at all. But here's what I know. I do believe the gospel can change our hearts. And I know that, that remembering the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, we can have a posture of forgiveness and maybe even want good for those who have harmed us. Because forgiveness is not about changing the person who has wronged you. Rather, forgiveness is really about not allowing bitterness to rule our lives to where we're stuck in prison. And this is what Jesus is going after. And this is why he ties it in with murder. He's like, man, it's the same way that murder would, would negatively impact our lives. And he says, even send us to hell that we would not have the posture of anger that stays and resides in our life. It's no way to live. 
So Jesus is offering in this sermon a way of freedom and saying forgiveness is possible. Reconciliation is possible. And it's possible for all of us who believe. So this morning, my question is, have you taken steps of forgiveness and reconciliation in your life? Maybe you're here this morning and you can really even relate to the words of Jesus that you feel because you have unforgiveness and you have relationships in your life that are not reconciled. And you feel this sense of prison that's occupying your thoughts as you're driving to work, as you're driving to class, as you're laying your head down at night. You're just, you feel this, this bitterness stewing and raging in your heart. And Jesus is like, my child, my son, my daughter, this is not how I want you to live. I want you to live in freedom. So have you taken steps this morning? And maybe you're here this morning and it's you that needs to be forgiven. Welcome to Integrity Church. That's all of us. You can be forgiven both vertically this morning by God and horizontally by others. And here's what I mean vertically. Maybe you just feel like, man, my sin is, is too great. If God can't forgive me, no one can forgive me. But the reality is God will forgive you. And the scriptures say that in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That Jesus would reconcile himself to you, not because you humbled yourself, but because he sent Jesus to humble himself for you so that you can see the humility of Christ and the humility of Christ Jesus would humble you and cause you to know that you are forgiven by Christ. That's the hope that you have this morning. So if you feel unforgiveness in your heart, man, turn to Christ. Allow him to change you. If you feel like, I can't be forgiven, turn to Christ. Allow him to change you. And maybe this morning you're the one who's offended someone else, and maybe you need to take a step and approach this person that you've wronged, and you ask for their forgiveness. Hey, when I said this, when I did this, when I abandoned you, when I left you, I just want to offer forgiveness. I want to reconcile. I want to make it right. And perhaps God would use that process or that conversation or maybe even that person to show you his grace. And the lie is that we hold is, man, if I start sharing that, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to, listen, those are the lies from Satan. We just got to take steps of faith and trust Christ. And maybe you're the one this morning who needs to take a step to forgive. And could it be that maybe this morning you're here in a space of fake forgiveness or fake reconciliation? Well, that really bother me. We just kind of blow it off and we just kind of put a little Christianese around it, put the right verses around it so we don't have to feel those senses of forgiveness or, or reconciliation in our life. But maybe there's some work to do here. As Jesus said, you'll never get out of this prison until you've paid the last penny. So maybe there's steps this morning that should be taken to say, hey, maybe it goes back to the offender and say, yeah, you know, I acted like that was okay. I kind of laughed it off. I kind of minimized it. But can I just tell you, it was actually hurtful. I've been hanging on to this, and it's not been healthy. But you as my friend, you as my brother or sister in Christ, you matter to me. And so you as my friend or my brother and sister in Christ, I want more for us. So I want us to move into this, this process of forgiveness and reconciliation. I don't, I, I don't want to live in this prison where I'm holding on to this. So maybe it's just an honest, gentle, kind conversation about what happened and how to move forward, a face-to-face conversation. I believe everyone is worth a face-to-face conversation. 
And honestly, when I've had those in my life, most of the time it's brought me closer to that person. And every time I've had a conversation like that, it has helped me grow in my faith. Because here's why. I hate those conversations. And it causes me to have to pray and to trust God and to ask me for help and to give me faith. But every single time, it's grown my faith. And so this morning, maybe there's a lot of hurt in your life that you haven't shared, that you haven't brought to the surface. And a step might be for you this morning to say, I am carrying a lot. There's a lot of things that have hurt me, and there's a lot of people that have hurt me and wronged me that I've never shared it. So maybe this morning, a step for you is just to talk to a close friend who loves Jesus, a safe friend who loves Jesus, or talk to a counselor to process the hurt and the pain so that you can make steps to, to heal and forgive and, Lord willing, to reconcile. And this is, this is important to the Lord. And church, if this matters so much to Jesus, he said that even if you brought an offering to God, I want you to set that offering aside. I want you to deal with this first. This is how important this is. So in a way, forgiveness and reconciliation are like acts of worship to God. Because in doing so, we get to reflect all that Christ has done for us. And church, let me remind you, this is something that we get to do because of what Jesus has done for us. And one of the ways that we get to reflect what Jesus has done in our lives is when we walk in forgiveness and reconciliation. So may God do his work this morning, church. God help us.